This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording of Aristotle's Poetics, translated by Ingram Bywater with a preface by Gilbert Murray and read to you by Bob Foster. Chapter 17 at the time when he is constructing his plots and engaged on the diction in which they are worked out, the poet should remember, one, to put the actual scenes as far as possible before his eyes. In this way, seeing everything with the vividness of an eyewitness, as it were, he will devise what is appropriate and be least likely to overlook incongruities. This is shown by what was censored in Carcinus, the return of Amphiaros, from the sanctuary. It would have passed unnoticed if it had not been actually seen by the audience. But on the stage his play failed, the incongruity of the incident offending the spectators. 2. As far as may be, too, the poet should even act his story with the very gestures of his personages. Given the same natural qualifications, he who feels the emotions to be described will be the most convincing distress and anger, for instance, are portrayed most truthfully by one who is feeling them at the moment. Hence it is that poetry demands a man with special gift for it, or else one with a touch of madness in him. The former can easily assume the required mood, and the latter may be actually beside himself with emotion. 3. His story, again, whether already made or of his own making, he should first simplify and reduce to a universal form, before proceeding to lengthen it out by the insertion of episodes. The following will show how the universal element in Iphigenia, for instance, may be viewed. A certain maiden, having been offered in sacrifice, and spirited away from her sacrificers into another land, where the custom was to sacrifice all strangers to the goddess, she was made there the priestess of this rite. Long after that, the brother of the priestess happened to come, the fact, however, of the oracle having, for a certain reason, bidden him go thither, and his subject in going, are outside the plot of the play. On his coming he was arrested, and about to be sacrificed, when he revealed who he was, either as Euripides put it, or as suggested by Polydus, by the not improbable ex exclamation, so I, too, am doomed to be sacrificed, as my sister was. And the disclosure led to his salvation. This done, the next thing, after the proper names have been fixed as a basis for the story, is to work in episodes or accessory incidents. One must mind, however, that the episodes are appropriate, like the fit of madness in Orestes, which led to his arrest, and the purifying, which brought about his salvation. In plays, then, the episodes are short. In epic poetry they serve to lengthen out the poem. The argument of the Odyssey is not a long one. A certain man has been abroad many years. Poseidon is ever on the watch for him, and he is all alone. Matters at home, too, have come to this, that his substance is being wasted and his son's death plotted by suitors to his wife. Then he arrives there himself after his grievous sufferings, reveals himself and falls on his enemies, and the end is his salvation and their death. 
This being all that is proper to the Odyssey, everything else in it is episode. Chapter 8, which is a continuation of uh, some of the bits that were started in Chapter 17. And this is the fourth point. There is a further point to be borne in mind. Every tragedy is in part complication and in part denouement. The incidents before the opening scene, and often certain also of those within the play, forming the complication, and the rest the denouement. By complication I mean all from the beginning of the story to the point just before the change in the hero's fortunes. By denouement all from the beginning of the change to the end. And in the Lincius of Theodectes, for instance, the complication includes, together with the presupposed incidents, the seizure of the child and that in turn of the parents, and the denouement all from the indictment for the murder to the end. Now, it is right when one speaks of a tragedy as the same or not the same as another to do so on the ground before all else of their plot that is, as having the same or not the same compli complication or denouement. Yet there are many dramatists who, after a good complication, fail in the denouement. But it is necessary for both points of construction to be always duly mastered. Point 5. There are four distinct species of tragedy, that being the number of the constituents also that have been mentioned. First, the complex tragedy, which is all peripety and discovery. Second, the tragedy of suffering, for example, the Ajaxes and Ixions. Third, the tragedy of character, for example, the Phthiotides and Peleus. The fourth constituent is that of spectacle, exemplified in the Phorcides and Prometheus, and in all plays with the scene laid in the netherworld. The poet's aim, then, should be to combine every element of interest, if possible, or else the more important and the major part of them. This is now especially necessary, owing to the unfair criticism to which the poet is subjected in these days. Just because there have been poets before him, strong in the several species of tragedy, the critics now expect the one man to surpass that which was the strong point of each one of his predecessors. Point six. One should also remember what has been said more than once, and not write a tragedy on an epic body of incident, that is, one with a plurality of stories in it, by attempting to dramatize, for instance, the entire story of the Iliad. In the epic, owing to its scale, every part is treated at proper length. With a drama, however, on the same story the result is very disappointing. This is shown by the fact that all who have dramatized the fall of Ilium in its entirety, and not part by part like Euripides, or the whole of the Niobe story, instead of a portion like Aeschylus, either fail utterly or have but ill success on the stage. For that, and that alone, was enough to ruin <clears throat> even a play by Agathon. Yet in their... Peripeties, as also in their simple plots, the poets, I mean, show wonderful skill in aiming at the kind of effect they desire, a tragic situation that arouses the human feeling in one, like the clever villain, for example, Sisyphus, deceived, or the brave wrongdoer, worsted. 
This is probable, however, only in Agathon's sense when he speaks of the probability of even improbabilities coming to pass. Point 7. The chorus, too, should be regarded as one of the actors. It should be an integral part of the whole and take a share in the action, that which it has in Sophocles rather than in Euripides. With the later poets, however, the songs and the play of theirs have no more to do with the plot of that than of any other tragedy. Hence it is that they are now singing intercalary pieces, a practice first introduced by Agathon. And yet, what real difference is there between singing such intercalary pieces and attempting to fit in a speech, or even a whole act, from one play into another? Chapter 19 the plot and characters having been discussed, it remains to consider the diction and thought. As for the thought, we may assume what is said of it in our art of rhetoric, as it belongs more properly to that department of inquiry. The thought of the personages is shown in everything to be affected by their language, that is, every effort to prove or disprove, to arouse emotion, pity, fear, anger, and the like, or to maximize or minimize things. It is clear also that their mental procedure must be on the same lines and their actions likewise. Whenever they wish them to arouse pity or horror, or have a look of importance of probability, the only difference is that with the act the impression has to be made without explanation, whereas with the spoken word it has to be produced by the speaker and result from his language. What indeed would be the good of the speaker if things appeared in the required light even apart from anything he says? As regards the diction, one subject for inquiry under this head is the turns given to the language when spoken. For example, the difference between command and prayer, simple statement and threat, question and answer, and so forth. The theory of such matters, however, belongs to elocution and the professors of that art. Whether the poet knows these things or not, his art as a poet is never seriously criticized on that account. What fault can one see in Homer's Sing of the Wrath, Goddess, which Protagoras has criticized as being a command where a prayer was meant, since the bid one do or not do, he tells us, is a command. Let us pass over this, then, as appertaining to another art, and not to that of poetry.